Welcome to Women and Shakespeare. I'm your host, Dr. Varsha Banjwani, and today I'm thinking about the prominent theatre reviewer and commentator Lynn Gardner's provocative question, Who owns Shakespeare? And her equally profound answer, which is, Nobody, and all of us. Gardner wrote this piece as a rebuttal to self-appointed Shakespeare police types who were claiming, yet again, that Shakespeare belongs to some more than it does to others. Women of colour have often been at the receiving end of explicit and implicit policing, which is aimed at excluding them from the Shakespeare conversation and practice. This is why I am thrilled to introduce this episode's guest, Donna Crawl. She was the first black Cleopatra on the professional British stage and therefore has been at the forefront of asserting women of colour's ownership of Shakespeare in Britain. You might have seen her in numerous roles, including Nerissa, Amelia, Mistress Overdone, Mistress Quickly, of course Cleopatra, and very recently as the John of Gaunt. If you thought she's magnetic on stage, I can confirm that she's utterly charismatic in person. After she had left, we all confessed that we were smitten with her. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we enjoyed recording it. It's so nice to have you here. You're so welcome to Women and Shakespeare podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm going to begin, as I always begin, I ask everyone this, when was your first encounter with Shakespeare and what was the nature of that encounter? My first encounter with Shakespeare was my mother reciting and singing, I think it's Ariel's song, Where the bee sucks, there suck I, in a cowslip's bell I lie. Because my mother went to very posh school and so she knew Shakespeare. But I didn't know it was Shakespeare, and I used to go singing it around the garden at home. But the first time I was on stage with Shakespeare was when I was 16 at an all-girls school, and I played bottom. (laughs) And all my teachers said, you should be an actress. The headmistress actually said, which I thought was hilarious at the time, yours is the best bottom I've ever seen. (laughs) When you're 16, that's funny. (laughs) But um, they encouraged me to do it, and so I did. And so I started acting in 1976, but I didn't actually do any professional Shakespeare till 1986. And your first role was Nerissa. Nerissa in The Merchant of Venice. So how did you feel with your first professional Shakespeare production? I've always wanted to do Shakespeare, and I had said to my agent, oh, I'd like to do this, I'd like to do that. I always wanted to play Titania. I've always enjoyed the language, and so I wanted to do it. And then I got it in 86, and I realized I was working with people who had just left drama school, and they were doing Shakespeare. Why hadn't I been allowed to do it? Things are very different in the 80s, and in the 70s and 80s to to they are now. So that's almost 10 years into your career, isn't yes, it? Yes, Wow. And I'm working with all these what I thought were very posh actors. Uh, and I thought they were all much better than me. And then I realized working with them that they weren't. They were just whiter than me. And that production changed my life. When I finished it, I said to my agent, I'm not doing any more repertory theater, which is what I'd been doing. I want to do work in the West End if I'm doing theater. And I want to do film and I want to do television. 
what a cheek. But I turned down, I think I turned down four jobs and I was out of work for about three months and then I got a job in the West End. So it's worth saying, I don't want to do this kind of work anymore. Like 10 years, I think, is a good apprenticeship. Oh God, yes. So I've done that. So now I'm going to do a next next step up, and that's what I did. Yes, but you did play. You yes. did play Cleopatra on yes. the professional stage. Yes. And in fact, in 1991, yes, uh, you played uh, Cleopatra for the Talava Theatre Company's yeah. production, and the media at that time was widely publicizing the fact that you were the first black actor to play Cleopatra on the British professional stage. But before we talk about your role, I just want to know from you, what does the term black signify? Um, it means a specific experience, something that people who are non-black will never have, and will never understand or appreciate. And more importantly, the vast majority of non-black people don't acknowledge the experience. That's a huge difficulty. It's much more, you're saying, than, say, a political label. It's much more than a, even a cultural label. Yes. It's much more about that everyday lived experience with all of these inherited histories as well. Yes, in in Europe, certainly, and in America, absolutely. But if you live in a country where there is a majority um, black population, you don't realize you're black. No, of course. Because everyone's having the same experience. You only realize you're black when you rub up against non-black people. And, and being black in an all-black environment is joyous <laughs> if you have the being black in European environment to compare it with. So I want you to try and go back to 1991. And Talava's production opened and the first black actor to embody Cleopatra on the British professional's um, stage stepped into the limelight. Do you still remember what that moment felt like? Um, it felt to me as if it was a totally natural thing to do. If you are the Queen of Egypt, Egypt is in Africa, and I have African blood, and that was a perfectly natural thing. I didn't understand what all the fuss was about. <laughs> I realized later it was because Cleopatra is seen as a a symbol of great beauty, and black women in this society are not regarded as beautiful. I mean, if things have changed a little now, where you have Lupita Nyong'o on the front of magazines, that wasn't happening in 1991. And it didn't occur to me, because I've always thought I was beautiful. My parents told me I was, and so I assumed I was. <laughs> and um, that I realized, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was what that argument was about. How dare this black woman take on the part in Shakespeare, which is the most revered and beautiful part. That's what that was about. But I didn't notice it. I just thought, this is me. It's completely natural. Completely natural, natural yeah. yeah. And I didn't have to play her beauty and her sexiness. People try, once you try playing sexiness and beauty, it's lost. You become a spice girl, you know. <laughs> um, you, you, you just are. Judy Dench played Cleopatra. 
and she's a little rounded lady. But on stage, she was gorgeous because she just believed she was. And that's how you have to approach those kind of parts, I think. What was your interpretation of Cleopatra then? I took her to a modern setting. I thought, what would happen in the world if George Bush started dating Tina Turner? Can you imagine the wahala? That's a Nigerian word for hoo-ha. I think it's a lovely word. Can you imagine the wahala that would be her tawny front and this gypsy and all those nasty things that they say now about Meghan Markle, for instance? That's exactly what Shakespeare had written. And I thought, this is, this is what's happened. Antony has gone to the, the conqueror. They, they were the, the colonizers. He's gone to Africa and he's gone native. He's wearing the jalabi. He's smoking the pipe. He's drinking the palm wine. He's having a great time. And here's this gorgeous queen. He's got a black woman. Hey, what's not to love? But the colonizers see it as a total betrayal of their culture. That's how I saw it. And I saw Cleopatra enjoying the power she had over this man who thought he was colonizing her. She is quite clever, isn't she? I feel like she's played, you were right, sexily and beautifully, but she is a shrewd, amazingly political woman, isn't yes, she? she's a very sharp operator. She knows exactly what she's doing. And there were times when I called upon the influences of Thatcher, because she was in power at the time, and I watched a powerful woman in an an environment of all non-black, public school-educated old men <laughs> and how she manipulated them for how many years? Couldn't get rid of her. So sometimes I called upon her powers as well. Completely different question. Yeah. You've said in interviews that your greatest professional achievement is that you haven't gone mad. And I love it. Uh, what is it about the British theatre industry that is particularly maddening? The British theatre industry was never designed and never looked upon black actors as anything other than people over there, or people to open the doors, or people to serve the tea. If you go into the National Theatre now, you will see black actors. But if you go onto the top floor, there may be one. If you go into the canteen, there are lots of them working in the canteen. That thing about going mad is that I have seen over the years, lots of black actors have mental breakdowns. I think David Herbert did a programme about his yes. in particular. But David Hayward is quite a successful uh, actor now because he went to America. But if you're here working and working, I mean, getting a break and doing The Merchant of Venice 10 years after I'd started working and then meeting white actors who were just out of drama school and doing it, that shows you the difference, how far behind I was. And I could have said, I'm never going to get anywhere in this profession. I'm working and working. I can't get any breaks. That will drive you mad. And I've seen it happen to, to lots of people. Yes. So when I say my ambition is not to go mad, I really mean it. And also in the black community, 
mental health and sanity is not a given. If you go into any of the psychiatric hospitals, we are overrepresented. And that's because the society is just not set up for us to succeed in that way. We can't expect and the glass ceiling and all the rest of it. We just can't expect to succeed. And that's frustrating. And some people are less robust than others and they go under. You you have not gone mad. No. <laughs> no. Well, I don't know. Lots of people <laughs> think I'm quite balmy. <laughs> oh, but you did have this... We did have this wonderful glass ceiling shattering moment, didn't we, very recently in 2019. And uh, you played John of Gaunt in Richard II at Shakespeare's Globe with an all-women of colour ensemble. By the way, I saw your performance and you were electric. Oh, thank you. The only issue I had was that you were killed off too soon. (laughs) You died too soon. I think Shakespeare's very clever. When you have an older actor, get them on, give them a nice bit, and then get them back in the dressing room where they can have a glass of wine for the rest of the week. (laughs) Surely that's the plan as you get older. Yeah, juicy part. (laughs) But then you get to chill out. That's right. Yes, great. (laughs) Before we discuss your um, role and your take on the role, what was your experience of working with that company of actors? Well, just glorious, totally liberating. To be in a room full of people who have the same experience as you of life in Europe, to have the similar backstories. So you say something and you're not thinking before you say it, oh, can I say this? Because I might upset him or her or the director. They'll take it the wrong way, so you keep quiet. In that room, anything that anybody said was understood, was taken on board, wasn't judged. Because we all understood it was a common language. You all knew what we were talking about. So that was fantastic. And, And then having this shared experience, which is what I guess most rehearsal rooms are like, but not for us, because usually we're the one um, black person in the room. So usually that's our experience. But to be with a load, it was was superb. I loved it. Totally different um, as well, way of operating and much quicker, I guess. Yes, yeah, and having to explain everything and justify yourself. But um, Mm. John of Gaunt is... An old man. Mm-hmm. So how did you approach that? Um, as an old person, um, none of us played men, really. No, I didn't think We, we did. played uh, human beings who have objectives, who know what they want to do in the play, what, what they need to get done, and some of them have to plot a way to get it done. But um, it didn't seem, an, didn't seem odd that I was playing a man. I'm just playing a person who has seen this in their lives and now sees the future differently and wants to get back to how things were, I think. That's how I approached it. And talking of what he has seen, and uh, he has this wonderful speech, doesn't he, about Britain being this sceptered isle, and then he says that it's now bound in with shame Mm -hmm. due to its own leadership. And yes. you were playing this when the Brexit negotiations were at its were, height. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must the have line felt. is 
That England that was wont to conquer others hath made a shameful conquest of itself. When do you know people applaud during a Shakespeare speech? On that line they applauded. It was extraordinary. Everybody on stage went, what, what? And I came off stage. And then after that happened on the press night. And then it happened almost every night. Who claps during a, a Shakespeare speech? But, but suddenly the, the Brexit thing it. hit everybody, yeah. I mean, sometimes you go and you see in a Shakespeare play, people are trying so hard to enjoy themselves. <laughs> they are really trying. I've paid £40 for this seat. I'm going to enjoy myself. Yes, and all those kinds of things. But that night, the audience was with you. They did get a very different style of audience as well in uh, the Sam Wanamaker mm. at that time. Mm. And I realized that everyone was attentive. They were with you on e that night. Even on those very uncomfortable seats. Yes, yeah. and that's quite an achievement. <laughs> quite an achievement, yes. Yes, yeah. yes, indeed. Yeah, I think the publicity, um, as Adua made sure we got out to the right people and let everybody... Because we, what we didn't want was to sit on stage and look out onto a sea of old white faces. Well, the reaction, nobody imagined that black women could tell a story. Nobody had seen that coming in the same way they didn't see Maya Angelou coming or Toni Morrison coming or, or Bernadine Evaristo. Can they just, it's not, because they've not seen it before, they can't imagine it. Actually, I want to talk to you about that because I loved reading this um, conversation that you had with Michael Macmillan that was published in this edited oh, collection, yes, Shakespeare, yes. Race and Performance. The editor of that collection, Delia Jarrett McCauley, was also a guest oh, on yeah, the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I know Dee very well. She's lovely. <laughs> and um, one of the things that you said in that conversation was exactly what you just said, that reviewers don't usually expect much from black actors. I too have written about and think a lot about that, the lack of diversity in the reviewing sector as well. What sort of effect do you think that has on black actors' performances or the way in which black actors' performances are read and understood and seen? I don't know, because I, I don't read reviews. I don't read them. Uh, I used to, like when I first started acting, it was great to see your name in print. But then I realized I never had a bad review. And I know I've done plays where I've been dreadful, but I never got a bad review. And it's because reviewers are frightened of looking racist if they say, oh, she didn't quite get this or she didn't quite get that. But even if the notices or the reviewing is good, that doesn't do anything, does it? Because no. then that's as patronizing. As, absolutely. As, it's like saying, oh... You know, for a black actor, you were wonderful. Or yes. for a disabled actor, you, you did one, very yeah, well, yeah, yeah. rather than... Yes, it's like my primary school, infant school teacher, because my, I learned to read before I went to school, saying, isn't she clever? Took me 40... it was a surprise. Well, it was, to her in 1950-whatever. Um, it took, took me 40 years to realise that what she meant was, isn't she clever for a black girl? But she didn't say that. So I just grew up thinking I was clever. I must have been an insufferable child. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I did. The other thing, of course, is that in the 
late 80s, early 90s, uh, the Arts Council said to theatre companies, you're not using black actors, and if you don't use them, you're going to get your grants cut. Suddenly there's lots of work. Suddenly my my uh, input was important. And I said to one company, I don't know why you're asking me all these questions. I said, because I'm the first black actor to work here, aren't I? Silence. Silence. The sounds of sphincters getting tight. But yeah, that was that was that. And also once they started doing that, the, the directors had no expectations of black actors. When I played Nerissa, I can say this now because the director has passed away. But when I played Nerissa, the director said to me, I think Nerissa's a bit older and wiser than than Portia. And I think Portia gets a lot of this, and he showed me what he meant. He put one hand on his hip, and the other, and his right finger, he wagged in my face. Of course, what I saw and heard was, Oh, Miss Portia! I thought, well, I'm not doing that. No, you're not. So I never did it once. And what I did was so much more interesting, so much more layered and textured and human, so much better than he'd ever imagined that he never gave me a note. He couldn't say, oh, Donna, at this bit, could you try that or imagine that? He couldn't ever because I was, I'd already gone past his expectations. And the boys in the company had a book, a betting book on whether Donna Kroll would get a note today. Eight to one, 14 to one. That's what they did. Fantastic. It was hilarious. Fantastic. But he had nothing to say to me because I'd surpassed his expectations. And I was very aware that that was the case. As soon as he waved that finger and I heard, I'll miss Pasha. He didn't say that, but that's what I heard. Absolutely. So kind of <laughs> reviewers and directors, they don't quite know how to critique these performances. It's getting better. Because now when you walk around the West End, there's a black actor in every play. Mira Sayal is the lead in, in Noises Off at the Garrick. That would never have happened in the 70s, never have happened in the 80s. In 1986, 87, I played Jacinta Condor in Serious Money by Carol Churchill. Yes. And my friend said to me, you do realize you're the only black actor in the West End who isn't singing and dancing. Um, before we kind of finish, I do want to ask you this question. Often, we hear a lot about what Shakespeare can do for diversity. Mm -hmm. But what, according to you, are the contributions of black actors to Shakespeare studies and performance? The main thing is the grounding of the work. When I first worked at Stratford, there was an, and you won't remember this, you're all too young, but there was a way of doing Shakespeare where everybody walked, as the women, walked on their tiptoes and spoke the verse like this and were terribly, terribly nice and as if they could float away. They were so airy-fairy. The When I went back in the 90s, whenever I went back, because I have done, I'm not doing that. That looks ridiculous. So you stand and you ground yourself. And you speak the lines in the rhythm. Rap music, as Cicely Berry at the, at the RSC said to me, she said, when I'm in New York, I go to all the rap clubs, she said, because that's where they're the best speakers of verse on the planet. And once you understand that rap and Shakespeare are the same thing, 
How empowering is that? And you can just stand and say it, feel the rhythms, syncopate and do it, said Donna Whittling about in her chair. Um, and that is something that uh, has, has been taken on by everybody now doing Shakespeare. There's no more airy-fairy farty. It's, it's grounded and strong and resonant. And I think that's a lasting legacy to what we've contributed to the playing of Shakespeare in this country. Yeah, so I think I really wanted to emphasize that, you know, it's not only Shakespeare who does things for diversity, but it is diversity that does things for Shakespeare. Absolutely. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Donna Kroll talking about Cleopatra, John of Gaunt, and the experience of black actors in rehearsal rooms and on stages in Britain. Next month, we have a multiple award-winning playwright who was an absolute hit with my students. She is... Hello, this is Chris Bush, and you're listening to Women and Shakespeare. So, dear listeners, adieu, adieu, adieu. Remember to tune in to Women and Shakespeare, streaming at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and www.womenandshakespeare.com. Until then, keep shattering those glass ceilings. (laughs) 